0: Welcome to Tone Benders, the Sound Designers Podcast. We your hosts, Dustin, Timothy, and Renee.
1: Welcome to Tone Benders. My name is Renee Coronado, and with me today, as always, are Timothy Muirhead and Dustin Camilleri. Hi, guys. How you doing? Hi. Hey, how you doing? And also with us today is Paul Verostek. Paul runs the sound effects website sound.com, and blogs about the art of recording sound effects over at Jetstreaming.org. Hi Paul, how you doing?
0: I'm doing great, thanks for having me on the show.
1: You can find us on Twitter, I am at Renee underscore Coronado, Tim is at Azmuth Audio, Dustin is at Pulse Train, and Paul is at Paul Verostek, P-A-U-L-V-I-R-O-S-T-E-K. So let's do some comments.
2: We got a bunch of comments from the website. If you want to leave a comment with us to be read on the air, just go over to tonebenders.net, click on the episode, and leave us a comment. We love to get them. From last episode, we got comments from Andreas Uzenbens from Ulm, Germany. Wow, I listened to all three podcasts in one day. You guys are amazing, informative, and amusing, and it's a real pleasure to listen to you. I love the little stories about everyone's lives and work. The quality is stunning, and I hope to listen to much more episodes. You guys rock. Well, thank you, Andreas.
1: Yeah, Andreas is a cool guy. He's got his own sound effects library that he's putting out as well. He's got some good stuff that's coming out.
2: Right on. Then we got a comment from Manuel Ashman. Uh, Really dig the whole show. Very relaxed. While still being concise, can't wait to hear future segments. Then uh, we got a comment from Colin Hunter in Paris, who actually wrote us after the first episode and suggested the iPad segment that we did. And he followed up with, uh, once again, another great show. Honestly, considering you're only three shows in, I think you guys have hit the right balance in terms of content. I was really happy to see you guys took on board my comment after the first show and interviewed David Burns. It was a fantastic way to answer my question. It's great to hear what extent people are using iPads. I was kind of focused on the touchscreen gestures, but I had overlooked the obvious use as a separate window and custom buttons. It will be interesting to see if companies take up the idea of using iPad as a dedicated space for plugins. Anyway, congrats once again as Sean mentioned when talking about designing sound, I know there's a lot of time involved in putting together what you're doing, but I'm pretty sure all your listeners are fully appreciative what the Tonebenders episodes are coming out with. Keep up the good work, guys. So thanks, Colin. Right on. That's good to have a follow-up to a question, and then it becomes a full circle.
1: Yeah, and as we move into the first segment here, there was a comment on the previous episode from Plunk and Bloom asking about when we recorded the sounds, what's a typical process of incorporating them into our library? And the first person that came to my brain was Paul Verostick on this, because Paul's been blogging about this kind of stuff in pretty intense detail over at his blog. And I wanted to bring you on, Paul, and kind of talk about the whole process. Just for a little setup here, kind of tell us a little bit of who you are and what your background is with Airborne Sound. So I originally got started
0: with sound effects back in Toronto when I was an assistant sound effects editor. And since that time, I kind of migrated from assisting and editing films to incorporating sound effects online. And so I consult for various downloadable sound effects and music websites. And I do a process that's called ingesting, which is taking other libraries or their libraries and putting them online so they can share them with other people. And of course, I do the same thing with my own uh, library. So through that process, I've learned how to prepare the sound effects so that they'll be usable for different audiences. For the clients, you know, the music guys might need their sound effects done in one way. The sound effects guys uh, or post-production guys might need to have it done another way. So also for my own background in post-production, I've been preparing sound effects so that it can just slip more easily inside the post-production films, TV, that kind of thing. So that's, that's originally how I began.
1: So what I kind of wanted to do here is I wanted to go in more detail about what my process is, because I have a pretty extensive process also. I haven't put it out and put it online to the degree that you have. But I wanted to kind of talk about what my process is and kind of discuss with you guys how you guys do it differently or the same. The very first thing that I do, say I walked back into the studio with a whole you know drive full of field recordings that I've gotten out in the field of whatever it may be. The first thing I do when I walk in the studio is I transfer the files. I know that sounds simple and dumb, but you have to do it because especially in my environment where I'm working with multiple people and everyone's using the same gear, the last thing I want to have happen is for a recording that I made out in the field to get wiped because that device, the 744 or whatever, gets taken out the next day on the next gig. So, you know, no matter how tired I am or how done I am with the day, I still can't leave the studio. When I show up with the gear, I have to dump all those files off of my recording device, onto my drive, immediately as I walk in the studio. I really, really think about that and think about the process of that because as I'm allocating my time, as I'm tearing down a a rig, it's important for me to be doing multiple things at the same time. And so the first thing that's happening is that drive is transferring files as I'm breaking down the rest of the gear and putting everything else up. To me, that's just super important because I've seen it happen. I've seen guys lose recordings. Because they said, you know what, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to leave it on the drive and I'll dump it tomorrow, you know, and then, uh, and don't communicate that. So, Renee, you're transferring it to a laptop at the field location? No. You know, typically I'll only have it, you know, I'll take out a 744, 788, and I'll, I'll record both to the internal drive and to the compact flash. But I guess my point that I'm making is once the shoot is done and I'm back in the studio with all of my gear, step one is dump everything off the drive. Because the moment I don't do that, the moment I decide I'm going to wait until tomorrow, someone's going to pick that piece of gear up and wipe the drive. Because our our standard protocol is when we take gear out or when someone rents, you know, people rent the gear that we use also. Standard protocol is wipe that drive and then ship it out, you know. And so I really have to be super protective of the recordings that I spend all this time and effort and sometimes money going out and getting.
0: I think that's a great idea. I do the exact same thing. As soon as I walk through the door, I break down the kit Everything goes onto hard drive. I'm even a little bit more paranoid. I make like duplicate copies, put them on a different physical location, especially if it was a stellar shoot. You just can't be too careful. I mean, it's so easy just to hit the keyboard and you delete all those files or you press a couple of buttons on the recorder and they're gone. Yeah, You don't want that to happen. So I think that's a great idea.
1: You know, one thing that I have that I'm fortunate to have here is a pretty heavy-duty backup system in place. And so what I do is I take the files and I dump them onto a drive that I'm positive is getting backed up. One of my responsibilities at Dallas Audio Post is to do the backups. And so I'm not having to trust anyone else really to back it up. I'm the one that's kind of in charge of that. And so I don't have to take stuff off-site because I'm the one that's in charge of backing it up. And there's a whole tape backup process that we have that does get tapes taken off-site. So, yeah, I could still get hit with a missile. Now, with that said, every so often I will just take my whole sound effects catalog and just chuck it on a drive and pull it off-site just to have it that way. So, anyways, step one is... Get the thing off of your field recorder and onto a drive that's getting backed up. Put it in multiple places simultaneously as fast as you possibly can. Step two for me is typically to take everything and throw it into Pro Tools. And, you know, I'll often have shot video or I'll have shot a lot of photography with my sound effects as I'm recording them. And so all of that kind of goes into Pro Tools. And I'll just start a basic edit of naming and stripping out all the crap that I don't need in there. Um, If I had a heavy multi mic shoot, like for instance, if I was doing vehicles or weapons or something that requires a lot of microphones, I don't tend to actually keep a track sheet when I'm shooting out in the field, right? And so I won't say, you know, I'm going to use the 416 on channel one and the cm threes on two and three and that kind of stuff. I don't do that. What I do instead is I'll tap slate. So that means that I'll roll and then I'll walk around to each of the microphones and tap each mic and say, this is this, what this mic is. And so I'll just I'll speak what mic it is and what position it is as I'm rolling. And so I'll just use a voice slate into all the mics. And so when I get back into the studio as I'm putting it all together, that's the point at which I figure it all out. It just keeps me from having to do any kind of paperwork at all with regards to where things are going to be. As long as I can see everything's rolling and I've gone and voice identified all the mics, that's where that comes into play on the back end because then once I throw them all into Pro Tools with the big multi-mic setup, I just listen to all the slates and then I name all the tracks based on all the slates. Paul, do you do something similar?
0: Yes, I do something similar to that, but I also break the type of sound effects into different categories as well, because I find it's really important to maintain the mentality I had during the session. So if I was in a particular groove when I'm shooting some effects, I want to go right into the studio and start attacking that stuff right away. I want to go through all the similar sound files different categories of stuff all at once. So if I have some cars I recorded and then maybe some Atmoses or Ambiences, I'll split those into separate sessions and then I'll go through them right away, take out the slates, do a quick trim, but make sure that the stuff that I recorded on the day that maybe didn't make it into an original slate or a tail slate, that I drop those into markers and then I can have that in because sometimes it's the tiniest details that can really make a track shine for some of the stuff that I'm doing and I want to be able to... Maintain that stuff. So I will split it the different categories into separate sessions and go through them quickly
1: right away. Interesting. Yeah, I tend to keep everything exactly the same session. Tim, what do you usually do?
2: Uh, well, one thing that I like to do is create a master folder for each day of recording and then uh, build subfolders if I'm doing multiple different kinds of things. So a kind of a bit of a hybrid of what both of you guys are doing. If I was recording cars and I did the engine, I wouldn't build a separate folder for the foley of the door opens and such like that. Mm-hmm. But uh, if I did cars in the morning and then I did forest sounds in the afternoon, I would split those off into different sessions for
1: sure. Right on.
3: Dustin, what do you think? Uh, I tend to keep everything within one session and then split it out once they're exported out of that session. Yeah, that's that's um, pretty
1: much how I run it. The reason yeah. I like having one session, I guess, is because I like my backups and my archives to look like
3: that. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of a location marker freak, mm-hmm. so that's kind of how I organize my sessions. I go into overdrive with those things, and that gets me around the need for tons of different sessions. And, yeah, I'm like you, Renee. I like the simpler approach, I think. Yep, for sure.
1: You know, and once I have stuff in there, once I have it all basically laid out and kind of fundamentally placed inside of my Pro Tools session, I'm not afraid to break open RX and start dealing with things on that level also. Rx is actually, it's a pretty great editor for certain things. And so even though I have the audio files basically referenced inside of Pro Tools, in a lot of cases I'll kick open Rx. And I always, nothing goes into my library without at least getting looked at inside of Rx. I at least want to see the spectrogram. You're
2: referring to Isotope's Rx. Yes. For anyone that's not sure what you're mentioning.
1: So Isotope RX is a really deep, denoising spectrogram, you know, you can run plugins on it and do that whole vibe to it. And I'm not afraid to go in there and really do some work on some tracks if I need to. I tend to prefer to do that inside of RX rather than inside of Pro Tools. I tend to prefer to do that kind of stuff destructively, which is why it's so important for me to take my original files and kind of put them off somewhere else. It's so
0: much easier to do that kind of processing right in RX itself. The tools are so... There's so much more fluid, and you have so much more control with the horizontal and the vertical selection and that kind of thing. That just isn't present in the Pro Tools plugin. So I think that's a great method.
1: And if I had a real simple shoot, like if I had just a one-mic shoot of an animal or whatever, um, in those cases, I don't go into Pro Tools. What I'll do in those cases is I'll just take that one long, say I've got an hour-long recording of an animal, I'll just take that thing straight into RX, and I will handle everything exactly as I need to inside of RX, and then I'll start highlighting file regions and just exporting straight out from that. So in those cases, there's not even a Pro Tools session. There's just a master file and then there's outputs. I only go to Pro Tools if I have, you know, three mics or more. But even when I have stuff inside of Pro Tools, I'll tend to open every individual file inside of RX. I did a Kickstarter, I guess, a year or two ago, maybe two years ago now, where we did a big trolley shoot, right? And so we brought a whole bunch of mics out and we recorded all these trolleys. One of the things that I did when I had all those mics inside of Pro Tools, and this is on you know, multiple recorders and multiple people, but you know I took a minute and, and synced it all up and put it all straight inside of Pro Tools. And then I went and I opened up every single track inside of RX and just did whatever surgery I needed to do. And in a lot of cases, it's just a straight high pass, but I like the high pass inside of RX better than a lot of the tools that I have in Pro Tools. And so you know, in a lot of cases, it's just that type of thing. But I actually did go in and, Play each one all the way down, and you know, draw out any little weird, you know, clicks or pops or weirdnesses inside of RX across every single individual mic, and it took forever. <laughs> <laughs> How many tracks were you running? Um, let's see, I can't, I can't remember. It's been years now, but I know I was running at least twelve. Oh my god! Basically, we we set it all up. I mean, we just mic these trolleys to death, and we just ran them. these trolleys out to where no one else was on them and you know we we were able to kind of set up and do what we did and they actually broke away the floorboards so that we could record the motors underneath as well from the inside which is really cool
2: I have that library I'm just part of that Kickstarter and I've used it extensively So you did a good job, Renee. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks for cleaning that up so I didn't have to.
1: Dude, it took me forever. (laughs) But um, that was that exact process, right? So, you know, we took all these mics and we put them on the thing. And then we literally, everyone tapped on their mics and said what mic it was and where it was aimed. And then we ran the trolley down the track and all the way back, you know. And it was more than just down the track. It was actually through the neighborhood, out and about and back around and dodging other trolleys and doing all of that and come back. But I guess the point that I was making, though, is that I'm very hardcore about putting everything into RX and at least taking a look at it and deciding whether or not I need to handle something. Because I really like being able to just destructively attack certain issues with regards to, again, high-passing or, you know, drawing out clicks or, or whatever it may be. You know, birds are always mess up, whatever thing you got going on.
2: Are so. we all in agreement that RX is the one to use for that? Is anyone using any other uh, noise reduction software?
1: I do use the Wave's
0: uh, Z-noise sometimes because it operates a little bit differently. Isotope is incredible for what it can do, but I found that the way that it takes out noise is a lot different from the Wave's version, where the waves will reduce it. The way that it it reduces it is a little bit more subtle, so you can play with it a little bit more. I find that with Isotope, it's either all or nothing. It's either going to take all of it out, which can be really challenging for uh, sounds that have some really sharp transients. The noise will still be buried in it a little bit. But with the Waves plugin, you can still play with it a little bit more and it doesn't sound as, as much like the noise is spiking. So I sometimes use that or use them in combination. But Isotope is, I mean, it's incredible. It's worth the money.
1: Are you talking about using the actual denoising algorithm inside of Isotope? Yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually very hesitant to do that almost ever. I guess what I'm using it for is mostly high passing and using the spectral repair mm-hmm. to, uh, to do things like that. Or sometimes I will run a multiband expander as a denoiser because that leaves absolutely zero artifacts and it tends to work pretty well. It's not like a noise remover, but it does kind of separate your signal from your noise by six or eight dB or so. I'm usually very hesitant to, in my mastered sound effects files to run any kind of denoising algorithm to it.
2: Now, do you use the C4, Rene? Yeah, yeah I use the C4,
1: yeah. There's a setting called a four-band noise reducer that is kind of a basic starting point. Yeah. I have a preset that I've built off of that that has all of the attacks all the way faster, and instead of it only being 2 or 3 dB, it's something like 5 or 6 dB. And that's kind of the preset that I tend to use as a starting point. And then you obviously just grab your thresholds and set your thresholds right above the noise. Uh, but that's the preset I tend to use as a starting point for if I've got some broadband noise that I want to back off a little bit. I much prefer that to uh, denoising algorithms.
0: Now, what do you think about the destructive nature in RX? How do you get around that? Because if you want to roll back, for example, you mm-hmm. do something, you push it a little bit too far. Because RX, I mean, it's got the command Z, so you can undo a little bit. But do you mm-hmm. t- work anything into your workflow, Renee, so that you can roll back to an earlier version after you've made some kind of destructive edit?
1: No. You know, in my opinion, design is making decisions, right? You know, RX has a very easy kind of uh, history that it's got down in the bottom right, right? And so, you know, it's very easy just to go back to your initial state and listen to your initial state versus whatever you've done to it with your 15 passes of whatever. So it's easy to jump back and forth and see if you've actually hurt the sound or if you've helped it. But in my opinion, you really do have to kind of make a decision and own it. I can't say I've never made mistakes, (laughs) but with that said... I make fewer and fewer the more often I do it. Dustin, what do you think?
3: Uh, I I agree with you. I think it's about decision-making. And, you know, as far as protecting my files, I think, Renee, you had mentioned that the first thing you do is you make a backup copy of your original source yeah. before you start doing any kind of processing to it. And I do the same. Obviously, the source is kept somewhere and is untouched for the life of that project. And then any processing I do is on another copy. So, you know, I can always get back to the original if I need to, but I do actually enjoy the process of making decisions. And sometimes being stuck with something that maybe you're not totally in love with, you have to solve that problem in a more creative way and you end up with a result that is maybe better than what you actually had envisioned and completely by accident. But that's part of the thing that I love about this work.
1: Yep,
2: for I sure. kind of use a bit of a hybrid approach where what I'll do is I'll master the original file and put it into my library clean. Uh, I might do a little bit of cleaning up, but make sure the tops and tails are uh, clean edits and I'll put it in the libraries clean. And then I will put also into the library another version that I call affected that will have any processing that I've done onto it. That way. If I'm in a quick hurry, I can grab the processed one and work with that. But if I find that that one doesn't work for a project in the future because I want it to be processed a different way or something, in the library right beside that designed one, I have the original clean one that I can pull up right away and start from scratch or just use it in its virgin
1: state. Are you talking about things like high-passing traffic out of tree recordings?
2: Well, if it's something that I'm... Fairly sure will never ever need to be. I was more referring to uh, compression or uh, right. like actually designing a sound. Sure,
3: sure, yeah. See, so, yeah, I don't clean up any of that stuff when I archive because I have in many cases gone back to those things that I thought I would never use from that recording and used it on something else. You know, if, if I'm recording Wind Through Trees and maybe something fell onto my microphone. Well, if I was cleaning that up, I'd cut that out. But maybe I'm working on another project where that's the right sound for what I need. And I can remember, oh, remember that time I was doing that session and something fell into my recorder? That's the thing that I needed. So I can go back to the original source and and use that.
2: Yeah, in that case, I keep the original sources. So I have kind of three phases. The backed up original source, the clean top and tailed kind of virgin state, and then any designing that I've done to it. But I only put the latter two actually in my library the rest is just on a drive in a folder with the date that i recorded
1: it so i can go get it if i
3: need it yeah it just as a permanent archive yeah yeah i gotta say i actually
1: would probably lose it if something hit my mic and it was in the recording i would tend to cut it out and then not put it in my library that way
3: yeah i wouldn't tag it and metadata it but i would keep it somewhere I keep everything. I'm a very staunch believer in that there's no such thing as an unusable sound. Sure. It's just a sound that's not right for the project you're working on right now. But everything has a place, and you might need it. So you recorded it. Why throw it out?
1: I guess my mentality is a little opposite in that I want to keep the things in front of me as uncluttered and as clear as possible. I don't want to have to always fight through that little bump every time I spot that sound, right?
3: Well, right, that's what I, when you add it to your library, you would clean it out. But for archival purposes, oh, sure. that's why the original sounds are always completely untouched directly as they come off the recorder. Sure, yeah. I don't touch them at all. I back those up to a separate spot, and then I clean up and you know, make library material out of what I think I need. But at some point, everything, the original source is kept exactly as is, exactly as it went through the mic, exactly as it hit the recorder.
1: Yeah. Well, I guess the question I would have for you on that is, how often do you go back to those? Because even though I do keep all of mine, I almost never dive into the original uncatalogued, unedited recordings.
3: I do quite often. Really? Yeah, I do quite often. Yeah, Because I'm not really a field recorder in the sense that I go out to capture a specific thing. My field recording tends to be more based around, let's just go out and record some stuff not necessarily per project, or even if it is per project, I try to keep my my itinerary very loose because mm-hmm. I don't necessarily know what I want until I hear it. So I go back in quite a bit and will take little bits that I thought, well, this isn't so great, but for a project a year from now, it might be just the right thing. And I may not have cataloged it at the time, but it's good to know that I have it in my source material, so I'll go back and grab it also do a lot of recording in the studio making weird sounds and cutting up synthesizers and automated processes, which I'll just let run for hours and then chop those up. And I keep all those recordings as is as well. So I may chop them up into little bits that I think, well, this one's great and that one's okay and this one's good and I can catalog those. But I'll keep the entire take separately so that I can go back at some later date and maybe take a different piece of it if that works better
1: yeah that's interesting. You know, I rely so heavily on my cataloging and metadata. I put so much effort into it that I almost never go back to my source recordings. I only go back to the source recordings if I really jack something up. Um, Paul, where do you kind of stand on that?
0: Well, I'm kind of with you, Renee, because I feel like in the projects that we work on and post, schedules are getting tighter. You don't want to be struggling with your materials, right? So if I find something is a little bit, you know I only want the best possible material there. So, That's the stuff that will make it into my library. I understand keeping an archival copy. I find that's also useful for increases in technology. Like before Rx came out, I don't even know when it came out. But some of the the recordings that I've saved using that software or other plugins that I've used, they didn't exist. And I might have decided, okay, well, I'm just going to scratch that and get rid of it. So some stuff where it's kind of like, I like that sound, it's kind of rare. I'm going to stick it aside and maybe something will come out. Maybe, I don't know though. You just keep it aside because that might become useful at some point. But in the end, I'm pretty merciless. If something is, you know, I I just don't feel that I would be confident using it in a project, it's gone. I
1: just delete it. I get rid of it. I'm pretty brutal that way, I guess. Yeah, I'm pretty similar. If we could do a quick touch on uh, just mastering on the types of things that we do as far as levels that we set and that type of stuff and how much and how little processing any given sound ends up taking. You know, with me, I do tend to go at things in a way that I want to isolate the things that I'm recording. And again, this is very different from what Dustin's doing, but what I want to do is I want to isolate the things that I'm recording and kind of get rid of everything else that I'm not recording. So for instance, if I am recording wind through trees, I'll be pretty aggressive with a high pass and I'll make that decision and I'll own that decision, I'll not have the traffic in that recording because I'll tend to know that in my workflow and in my process, I'm going to put traffic down separately if I need traffic. With that said. Like I said, I've made mistakes, and there are times when you can go too far with that. But I definitely do try to, as a philosophical thing, isolate the thing that I'm recording and roll with it. Unless I'm recording things in space. Like your loons that you recorded, I would probably not touch at all, right? Because the space is so important to how those loons sounded. You know, that's kind of where I'm at. With regards to levels, I always listen in a calibrated environment. And so I will basically just set levels in a place where they feel comfortable. With super, super transient things like weapons and explosions, obviously you do have to do some processing to make them even usable in a library. I still haven't really found religion on where to put guns as far as loudness is concerned. What do you guys think? Guns
0: in particular? I mean, I try and get that between minus 10 and, I don't know, something like minus 3. I kind of try and master the levels to the point where they're going to be used in a project. Again, if there's a sound editor that's going to be using something from my library, I want them to be able to drop it in, be able to use it as quickly as possible without going back in there, cutting out something and modifying it. There was, just as a slight aside, there's this one track on the Wolf library. I believe it was like a church ambience. And about a minute in, there's a digital watch beep that goes off. And it was right in the master recording. And I remember every time you want to use that ambient, you have to cut that out. Right? Yeah. So I'm into like, as far as the guns are concerned, making something so that it's going to be exactly how it's going to be used, make it easier for the mixers to use the complete track, will just slide in like that. So minus 10 to minus three, something like that.
1: Yeah. With regards to guns, it's not about the peaks that I'm mostly concerned about. Obviously your peaks are going to be up pretty high, Mm -hmm. but the question is how much compression are you using? How much are you bringing up the tail? into the recording Mm -hmm. you know what i mean Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that's the harder decision you have to make with regards to guns because once you compress something you can't uncompress it right you can always compress more but you can't undo it and because we don't have context as to how much dynamic range is there it's really a judgment call as to what's the maximum dynamic range that these things are going to be in place of and how much tail are you going to want to hear in that maximum space right and I just, I've never found the right answer to that. It's tough to commit because,
0: again, you don't know how the editor is going to use it, right? Or the mixer might want to play it completely differently. I usually, I'll play around with compression a little bit, but sometimes I'll just deliver the dry version. If the editor wants to use it, they can touch it up a little bit. I know that will take a little bit more work on their part, might take a little bit more work on the mixer's part, but uh, that gives them more flexibility. Sometimes that's a better answer, too. I don't know.
3: That's what I prefer. As a mixer, that's what I prefer is for you to deliver me. Dry sounds, you can deliver me a reference, certainly based on what you think this might work in the project, but when you actually deliver the sound for me to use, I would prefer it to be dry so that then I can use it the way that makes sense for my vision of that project. I certainly almost always take a less is more approach for that type of processing and that kind of thing. I almost always lean towards uh, dry, minimal processing for that kind of stuff because I don't know as you said, Paul, that it's kind of dictated by what the project is, and that project could be vastly different you know, per each iteration. So I prefer a sound that can be used multiple ways rather than have to fight, well, someone already made that decision and now that sound can't work for this project.
1: So if you're talking about a gunshot specifically, you prefer gunshots with zero compression on the middle?
3: I would, yeah, absolutely. Unless it's an obvious choice and the sound is completely unusable without it then that makes sense. But if it's something that could go either way, then, yeah, I would prefer something without any EQ, any compression, any anything. Because then, as as certainly as a mixer, as a mix engineer, I can then decide how it best fits into the, as you said, Renee, the context of that scene or the context of that project.
1: Right. It's trickier for me. Like, even when I'm doing stuff for my own internal thing, I still put compression on it because... I'm allowing myself to kind of sit and be in that space and just kind of work that for a minute. At least the gun recordings that I've done are pretty unusable without compression because they're so freaking dynamic. You know, the difference between the peak and the tail is, you know, 40, 50 dB. And so, because it's so wide, I feel like I have to get it get it into some kind of ballpark where I can use it as a gunshot and still assume that I'm going to put more compression on it after the fact, you know? I feel like it's just too dynamic otherwise.
0: Uh, Dustin, I was going to ask you, now when you get the dry tracks as when you're mixing, that's going to take a little bit of extra work for you to get them to a usable state, to kind of state that Renee is talking about. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about the extra work that it's going to take you to do that, to get it up there? Because you're going to have to work in those plugins do the work that you do, it's going to slow you down. What's, what are your thoughts on that?
3: Uh, I actually think it speeds me up because it's a more direct path for me to get to my vision of the project. Mm-hmm. I know exactly how I want that gun to sound, and I can make it sound that way pretty quickly because I understand my tools. Oh, cool. I understand my environment. You know, I think it slows me down when I'm given something that maybe isn't exactly what I wanted, and then I have to figure out how to reverse engineer that or to get it to fit into my project. If you give me something that's dry, I know exactly how I want it to sound. I'll make it sound that way fairly quickly, hopefully, and then we'll go from there. But I find I spend more time trying to undo other people's work to get it to sound the way I want, you know, going the other way than if I was just given the raw track and then I can just work straight from there. Mm -hmm. Because there's never an instance when I'm given a sound and I just drop it in and it's done. If that's the case, then I'm not adding any value to that project anyway. Anybody could do that. I'm always touching a sound, always touching a sound, and I would hope that most mixers are. So if I'm doing that, I prefer to start from a good base, and for me, a good base is as dry and minimally processed as possible.
1: So as we move into uh, cataloging and metadata, with me, it's important to, again, always include photography. I use SoundMiner as my main databasing thing, and I feel like the photography aspect of it really helps a ton especially when we're talking about ambiences and places. I find that a lot of different wind and grass recordings can kind of sound similar, and over time, my brain would forget which one is which. And so having a visual reference of the place that was recorded is very important to me and to my own recordings. I also like kind of seeing mic positions. So if I see a mic position on something, I really get a better perception of of exactly what that is and how it was recorded and how the mic kind of interacts with what I'm actually hearing. So the photography, you know, embedding photography into the actual B wave header, which is something that Soundminer does is something that I'm very big on and for my own projects and for my own work is very important to me. Outside of that, I also do tend to document the microphone itself. I don't tend to, in the metadata, do anything like describe the bit rate or the sample rate, because I feel like most uh, databasing programs can extract that on their own. And the other thing that I'll do, I guess, is if something stands out, I'll try and keep a limited set of keywords that I'm using across all projects, and I'll try and standardize that a little bit. You know, one thing that I found was very tricky is I participated in Tim Preble's Doors library. You had a lot of people that were addressing their metadata differently, and one thing that was very tricky on that specific library was you were opening and closing doors and you were micing them both near and wide, right? Well, some people, instead of saying near, they were saying close, right? And close is spelled exactly the same as close. And so sometimes you'd have a door open close and it would be wrong. Um, <laughs> and, be, and, and so what happens is when you're just searching for the open, but you end up with a bunch of closes also. In spots where it's not exactly right. You know, in a lot of cases, those, you know, the opens and closes are in the same file, and so it's not a big deal. But it did kind of open my eyes to the fact that I can't use close as an adjective to describe mic position. I have to use near, because um, otherwise I'll end up with a bunch of closes. So I do kind of have to pay attention to that type of thing as I, as I do my own stuff.
2: Similar to with guns, don't use the word fire the gun, because then you.
1: Yeah, then fire. you get a bunch of flame. Yeah. 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 <laughs> And, you know, SoundMiner does a um, thesaurus kind of thing anyway. So even if you don't type fire in there, sometimes if you type gun, you're going to get a bunch of fire anyway. So you have to kind of go through and define that as its own thing. The other thing I'll do is, yeah, I'll use, I'll try and find words that are very specific. So I won't even tend to use gun. I tend to use weapon. Um, I don't tend to use car. I tend to use auto or automobile.
2: It's just so that yeah, I can... Or you end up
1: with a bunch of cartoon references. Yeah, Exactly. Like... And so I try to, I try and find, you know, descriptors that are very kind of specific to that thing. And when I'm laying metadata down, I always give myself a literal description first, right? So this is literally what this is. You know, it's this car, it's, you know, at this speed and whatever. And then if there are other kind of non-literal things, those also go in there. So I'll look for texture words, things like dark, bright, fast, hard, distorted, clean, those types of things. So, first it's a literal description, and then secondarily to all of them, it's always a kind of textural description as well. Whereas I'm not always looking for a literal thing. Sometimes I'll know what literal thing I'm looking for. I'm looking for these specific crotalis bells that I know I'm gonna turn backwards, right? But sometimes I'm just looking for anything in my library that is bright and shimmery and clean and I want all of it to kind of hit. And so I have to take a moment and give texture descriptions to everything that's hitting. And then beyond that, I have like the cream of the crop kind of subcategories that I do, which would be um, like, I'll tag it with the word badass if it's in like the top 1% of sounds I've ever recorded or heard that I have in my library, right? And so when I'm looking for the specific badass cream of the crop stuff, I can find it like that. And it's a very, very narrow list. You know, I mean, thousands and thousands of sound effects. I've got like a couple hundred that have that tag on it. I'll also do things like kind of broader, like misspellings that are on purpose. So, for instance, if there's some designy stuff that I've done that's kind of clicky UI type things that are built with, you know, cameras and, and servos and those types of things that are custom designed by me that are mine that I own. I'll tag them with the word clicks with CLIX, and then that will always bring up only that and nothing else, and that's very important when I want to just go find those exact sounds that I know exactly what they are. And I've still got dozens of them, but I'm not coming up with all kinds of other random outside stuff. If I want other random outside stuff, I'll search for, you know, camera click, and I'll find a broader search. So it's always about thinking about your search queries as you're putting your metadata together. That's that's what's super important to me, Tim, what do you think?
2: A few years ago, I was met a guy right when I was starting to build my own library. I met a guy who was a total insane character, he had crazy hair and uh he called himself he self named himself the Gooch <laughs> and uh When I heard, when I was introduced to him, I was like, Gooch, that's my secret word in my library. So now, instead of badass, any sound in my library that I really love or want to be able to find quickly, it's it's named under Gooch.
1: I think secret words are huge. They really are. They're a big deal. It's great. Paul, you think about this more systematically than anyone I think I know. And Dustin, you run into a wider range of sound effects, I think, than the rest of us do. Because you'll roll and roll and roll for hours, right? Yes. So with regards to synthesis, synthesis is something that I still just completely fail at putting metadata to. How do you decide, A, um, what you're putting in the library versus what you're just saving as a synth patch? And B, what do you name it once it's in there?
3: Uh, So what you put in and what you don't is basically up to how you're feeling that day, to be honest. You know, today, does that sound good to you? Sure. Very rarely when I'm doing synthesis stuff am I trying to create a specific sound. A lot of times when I'm just doing the rolling for hours thing, it's kind of random processes, which I'm trying to just see what comes out of. So then it becomes, when you're going through those takes, just deciding, are you happy with that little bit? Are you not? Are you happy with this little bit? Are you not? And that just, again, goes back to just decision-making based on your taste at the time. When it comes to naming those things, it's the process, it's the device, it's the chain, so pretty much the patch, as much information about the patch as you can save. And then going back to those words that you're using, shimmery, bright, uh, sad, dark, whatever, you're kind of keying off emotions more than you are the specifics of what it is because those are such abstract sounds and don't really have tangible words that you can assign to them. So it becomes a much more abstract process, but. You look inside yourself and you say, I know that this type of sound to me is shimmery. That's what I would call shimmery. So I know that when I'm typing that into my SoundMiner database that it's going to pull back sounds that I expect to be shimmery. Now, shimmery is a word that could mean different things to different people. So I wouldn't necessarily expect to send that library out and have people be able to pull that back the way that they expect it to. It becomes a little dicier when you're sharing those libraries, but... I think if you spend enough time around sound people, you get to some kind of general understanding about the way we talk about sound when you don't have those specific words to use. So something like bright, well, probably has a lot of high end. Something that's dark probably has a lot of low end. You know that you can use those words uh, and people will generally understand what you're talking about. So as you said, Renee, when you're tagging something, you're trying to put as much data in there that will allow you to pull those sounds back in the easiest possible way. But it does become a little dicey because there aren't very obvious words. So you do get into a kind of an emotional area there, which is difficult, but it's fun. Do
1: you limit your vocabulary at all, or do you kind of just go with whatever's in your brain? You,
3: You start to come up with a general bucket of words that you use, but I don't generally limit it i like the accidents as you guys probably know by now i like the accidents even when i'm looking in my sound effects database and i type in a random abstract word and i get something back that i didn't expect i'm like oh yeah that's good that'll work i like those moments i like those moments quite a lot and i think it makes my projects a little more dynamic than if i always knew exactly what i wanted and only got that thing that i wanted i kind of like getting stuff back that i didn't expect
1: So, Paul, how do you go about dealing with uh, metadata tagging on synthesis specifically?
0: In regards to, like, keeping a clean version and a processed version? Is that what
1: you mean? I guess more I'm asking about how do you go about tagging it? Say you've made the decision to keep something.
0: Uh, So, basically, I guess my naming, it's actually kind of informed by two slightly off-center influences. Originally, before I got involved in sound, I went to school for publishing, print publishing, And one idea that they had there that I really like that I use for sound effects is something that's called a style sheet. And so a style sheet in publishing would be something that you give to all the editors within the facility and how you spell certain things. And basically it creates kind of a standard. And I find that a standard like that, even in sound effects, so do you use POV or do you use, do you spell it out, whatever it is, right? If you're working with a number of people, that's the first thing I do is I kind of make sure that there's a consistency. Because if there's no consistency, if there's bad spelling nobody's ever going to find that great sound that you record it that you want to share with people, right? So I use that. And then the other thing that I also draw from is my experience in finding or trying to share sounds on the web. And I've worked with websites that have, you know, a quarter of a million sounds. And how are you going to get your sound or someone that you want to put their library on there? How are they going to get their stuff found, right? So you have to make sure that... The description and the keywords, as you guys were mentioning, are specific and that they're accurate. So one rule that I go by is when I name a sound, I should be able to know exactly what it is without listening to it. So that it's got everything I need to know about it, what it's going to sound like using the proper adjectives, adverbs, and things like that. Then you can have a picture of what the sound sounds like in your brain. This is really helpful, especially, or it was very helpful for people on the web. So if you're doing a keyword search in some downloadable sound effects website, you're going to see a list of 60 sounds. You're on the go. You've got to finish your project. How are you going to pick the right one? You don't have time to go through and edition every one, right? But if there's great words and great descriptions, you can jump right to that. And so that's why with my own library, for every single sound I have, I've got two names. And the first one I call is the scientific name. And the second one I call a friendly name. So the scientific name is kind of broken down by, it would go noun verb adjective. Um, so you'd have like car driving, and then fast. Of course, you color that up with a number of different things. So you put in the car model before the verb, and then you could use a powerful verb for it, not just that it's driving, or you could say that's leaping or something like that. You you add it as, as technically as you can, and I do that so I'll have all the cars stack in a folder, right? So if you have the first name being car, and then you'll have like Acura, right? And then you'll have the next one will be 2007, but then you recorded some 1999s before they'll all list properly. So you can go through them if you are sorting them by file name in Soundminer, for example. The friendly name is something that's a little bit more verbose. So it'd be something that people can read easily and understand if they don't have to go through the scientific name. So I have both of them for every single sound in my library that's basically how I sort. Another thing that I noticed is the power, just like what you guys are mentioning, of having the right word. When I'm ingesting a lot of libraries, I see some libraries that could benefit from improvement. The spelling won't be right. or So I'll touch that up before I send it because, of course, if something's spelled improperly, they won't find it. The other thing I also do is I'll add power words to it. An example is, is I've got some waves crashing I was in Nova Scotia and recorded some waves crashing against some very powerful storm waves crashing against the rocks and I think I recorded for 15 minutes in one place and I broke them down they're slightly different and I put different kind of adjectives and power words and the thing is they sound very similar but when I look at which sounds are more popular for people it's always the sounds that are named powerfully and accurately a ten to one ratio so that's why I feel recording the sound is very very important But also for people to be able to use it, you have to have good meta and good descriptions, consistent categories and that kind of thing. And people just gravitate to that. I think it's because as creators, you know, we're working in films, we're working in video games, whatever it is, we respond to those words. It helps us take those colorful words and not just words that would be, you know, superfluous. They have to be useful. They have to be relevant you can take that and say you're cutting, I don't know, a medieval sword fight or something like that, and you can sense the emotion of the characters on the screen. If you're looking at sound files and you see something that's like, I don't know, an overpowering crash. But if you can draw from those words and think, yeah, that's it, that's the one. I'm gonna play that one and I'm gonna put it in. That just makes your job, I don't know, just that much more enjoyable and it helps you do your job faster. So. That's how I try and name my library. And also for publishing things on the web, if your sound is described a little bit more better, people are going to gravitate to that. They're going to download that. They're going to enjoy that. And they're going to be more attracted to the lab, that library.
1: I think that's that's quite a bit, actually.
2: Yeah, I like the way when we were g- talking about the rundown, Renee's like, I don't know if we're going like, to have enough for
0: this. And then of... 55 minutes of database. Sorry, did I go on there, guys? Sorry. <laughs> no, 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 let's no go it's get not get you. All it's us. all of us. <laughs>
1: Apparently we're all very passionate about this kind of thing. <laughs> well, um, it's, it's
3: interesting to me that there's a definite split in the way that you treat a library when it's yours and when it's something that's going to be shared. Yeah. Mm-hmm. you know, And I, I think that's why it's interesting to talk to you, Paul, because your work is almost entirely based around shareable libraries, which is very different from what I do, which most of probably 99.9% is creating stuff for my own use. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's why my workflows are so different than yours and probably a lot less meticulous than yours because it's all in my head, you know. I don't need to worry about someone else coming into my studio and being able to pick up my library.
1: Dustin, how much time do you spend tagging and cataloging your files?
3: I spend a lot of time doing that, but it's not based around such a very strict set of rules and an understanding that it has to fit a broad set of people because the only person that I need to know can recall the sound is me. Right. I made it. I understand what that sound is. The word that I'm attaching to it, I know. When Paul's doing that, he didn't make that sound. Maybe he's not the one using that sound. It's going to be somebody that he's maybe never met before that comes from a totally different place that maybe doesn't even understand English as their you know, native language. They have to be able to use that sound in the exact same way that that he could or I could. That's a totally different approach to what I'm doing. So I can go through my four and a half hours of synthesis recording and chop those up and name them in 45 minutes, and that'll be fine for me because I know exactly what that is. Paul, that might take him, I don't know how long that'll take him, probably a lot longer because he's got to go through each one meticulously and make sure that, you know, somebody on the other side of the world uh, four years from now can be able to accurately move through that database and pull exactly what they need.
2: Yeah. I'm actually migrating from Dustin's technique of uh, kind of keeping as much of the metadata in my brain as I was in the computer to Paul's more thorough, because I find that now that I'm getting of a certain age, my brain isn't as good (laughs) at databasing as it once was. I hear that. And uh, like in my 20s, I would just be like, you know, five words and throw it in sound minor and be done. But now I'm starting to be like, I'm not going to remember this in five years and really starting to fill out the metadata more fully than I used to.
1: That's definitely something I've learned through experience because, you know, my whole career, I've been in a collaborative environment with more than one audio guy touching all of my stuff, Right. Um, that was awful sounding. Let me try that again. It was. <laughs> I was gonna say some wow. <laughs> you can't edit that out. That's got. <laughs> my whole career, I've worked in in a collaborative environment where other people are always, you know, using my sound effects and using the things that I record and working with the metadata that I put in place, right? And so what I found is that, you know, we've we've maxed out at five engineers, so you know, you're only sharing between you know five people or so, right? But you still have to basically adhere to that same type of mentality in order to have everyone in the shop be able to use the catalog that you're putting together at its highest level. And what I found is that I'm also sharing metadata and information with myself over a period of time. By cataloging and documenting things a certain way, I'm able to find things years later that I hadn't thought about that the brain metadata had done faded Even when you are a one-man shop, the effort that you put into tagging your stuff out and making sure that you can find it on accident later, it's going to pay off down the road as you forget things and as things come back and as you do find things on accident. You can't find things on accident sometimes if you don't spend the time to tag them up on the front end. Good thing I'm editing this. (laughs) Well, you know, it's fun to kind of get together and discuss and argue a little bit Mm -hmm. about that because, again, everyone has their own perspective and everyone has their own needs. I just hope
2: we're not the only four people in the world that care this much about this.
1: (laughs) No, (laughs) I know we're not, but... Well, Paul doesn't think there is because he's writing a book about it.
2: Yeah, exactly. Good point.
1: (laughs) So tell us about the book. Um, What can you tell us and when's it coming out and what's it going to be about?
0: So the book is called Field Recording from Research to Rap. And basically it was started because... I kept on getting similar emails from people who were reading the blog, and they said, Paul, is there any books that you can recommend that talk about field recording specifically? And I didn't really know of any. There's a lot, of course, a lot of great books already on studio recording and mixing and that kind of thing. But I feel field recording is a little bit different just in the challenges that you face and the way that you perceive sound. So I kind of thought about it, and I thought, well, why not? Know, try and put some of my thoughts down on paper. And so I wrote, actually, I've got three done, but the first one deals with introducing field recording to people who are interested but maybe don't have that much experience. It's not really intended for uh, pros who have been doing it for years, it's more meant as an introduction. So if you're interested, you want to know what happens during field recording, what it's about, and how you can go through a shoot. It takes you from step to step, starting with researching and scouting contacting talent and then it moves you right into the session what happens when you're in the place where you're shooting whether it's you know a car shoot or you know an atmosphere what you do for sound isolation and then how you wrap up and it also has a section on common problems that people new to field recording might experience like noise hum dealing with security dealing with curious people when you're trying to be inconspicuous and trying to remain creative. So uh, I try and cover it all in a very simple, straightforward manner so that someone who's curious and wants to know more and wants to see if uh, field recording is for them or wants to explore how they can grow their own craft of field recording, how they can do that.
1: What do you think is the biggest mistake that people make when they go out in the field and try and record things?
0: Biggest mistake? I would say one common thing would be a problem with sound isolation especially with new people, field recording is a really fun thing to do. It's really exciting. And I think when you get out there, you can start recording and lose sight of the scope of what's going on around you. You can kind of be a little bit more involved in the gear itself and the actual physical act of operating it. One thing that I have found that's helpful is to kind of expand your perspective of it and make sure that you've got the exact sound that you want in there. So remove yourself from the gear itself and make sure that you've got those fans off, you've got the HVAC off, you've got just the sound that you want within your line of sight, more or less. Yeah,
1: right on. So it's just about addressing your environment before you actually roll tape.
0: Exactly, yeah. And I think it's easy to kind of forget about that. Every aspect of the environment that can affect the field recording, because when you're operating the gear itself, you kind of get wrapped up in the operational aspects of it. That's, I think that's a common thing.
3: Yeah, it's that old mixer's advice, right? Don't worry about the gear. Use your ears.
1: Uh Aha. Yeah.
0: That's good. Yeah, I like that.
1: Yeah, I'm constantly telling people to trust their ears, you know. Stop looking at the meters, and if something sounds wrong, it's wrong, and go fix it. Yep. Where's the book available, and who's publishing it?
0: Uh, So it's self-published, and it's now available on the website, jetstreaming.org forward slash books. You can find it there. If you have a Kindle, you can also download it from Amazon.com. There's a link there too, and a little button just takes you right to Amazon. You can download it right to your Kindle from there. Is it just an ebook or is it also? It is just an ebook right now. I'm working on getting a print version. It's a little bit more elaborate getting that done, but I wanted to get the information out as soon as possible. So I've got it in PDF, EPUB, and MOBI format, so you can use it digitally however you want. The print version should be coming out. December, let's hope. We'll see how it goes. Working with um, Amazon, getting it going, is there's a lot of hoops to jump through, so we'll see. How much will it be? Uh, it'll be $17. I've got kind of a little bonus pack that's got a whole bunch of call sheets, various worksheets that you can use. So if you've got like mic positioning and you want to fill out where your mics are, a gear manifest, all this kind of stuff, you want to fill those things out, you can just print them out. And then there's also a 30-day guide. Basically, what it does is if you want to find out what you want to do every day... It'll give you 30 steps of what to do. You start out basically organizing your gear, and each day it'll give you a new task of something to record. And I explain during the day what you're going to learn today is positioning and a little bit of stealth recording, and you're going to learn how to record animals today, and that will teach you blah, 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 this, 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 and that. And it, so that will step you through how to begin field recording and give you some projects on how you can learn to develop your craft.
1: I know in our first episode we did a little segment on what is in a basic fundamental field kit. Do you suggest a field kit in your book as well, as far as like what you need to fundamentally start recording?
0: I don't dwell that much on brands. What I do say is I'll mention the basic gear that you'll need. So recorder, preamp, microphone, uh, some kind of stand, the very basics just to get started, right? But I stay away from suggesting specific gear because that stuff evolves over time. I could have a new version of the book out in a week, let's say and those microphones could already be outdated. So instead of recommending specific models of gear, what I'll do is I'll say, okay, you want to look for this in microphones. If you're recording these kind of sound effects, you're kind of want to get a shotgun microphone, this or that, that
1: kind of thing. What was it like writing a book?
0: Uh, it was a lot of fun. I really got into it pretty deeply. I wrote solid for about, oh, I don't know, maybe 20, 25 days, about 10 hours a day. I was just really deep into it. And so it took a little bit of effort to keep going, uh, especially towards the end. It seemed to really drag. And some of the ideas that were a little bit more abstract were a little bit more difficult to put down on paper. But at the end of it, it was a fantastic feeling just to get everything out there. And I really want to share this with people so we'll get more great field recordings out into the world and people can share those with other people. So I'm excited to see what people think.
1: Excellent.
3: Well, it certainly sounds like a great resource. We thank you very much from the community at large. For- oh, For doing this, I think it's a great one. You said you have three of these already?
0: Yeah, so the next one that is, it's pretty much written, I have to touch it up. It's called creative field recording. So it kind of takes the basic ideas in field recording from research to rap, and it looks at it a bit more abstract. So the goal for that was to try and minimize the concept of gear in a field recorder's mind because... As field recordists, we have to use gear. It's like our partner. It's our sidekick. We have to use it. But it's also very easy to get absorbed in the mechanical aspects of it. But what is also just as important is being able to represent the voice of the sound that you're recording accurately and transfer that feeling and that emotion onto other listeners. So that book is about how you can pull those creative voices out of the sounds that you're recording or performing yourself. The third book is sharing sound effects and so what that is about is about taking your library shaping it into a really solid package and putting it online so it's all basically my experience and what i've learned about taking my sound effects putting them on airborne sound what makes some sounds more successful what you can do to make them powerful communicate with a particular audience and put it in various shops online so the last two i'm hoping to put forward in January, February, something like that, but I have to thank the community because really none of this would have been possible, or even the blog itself wouldn't have been possible with all the great people that I've met on Twitter and yourselves, and just people that comment on the blog, I mentioned that in the book itself, that you know these books just wouldn't have even happened if it hadn't been for everybody on Social Sound Design, Yahoo Sound Design Group, and everyone on Twitter as well, so it goes both ways.
1: Yeah, I've always thought that was interesting about your blog is how open and forthcoming you are considering you make your living from airborne sound. Is that correct?
0: Uh, I do, yeah, entirely.
1: You're putting yourself out there in the way that is, to some degree, it's training your competition, right? But the community is generally very respectful of each other, I think. I know that as someone that also puts out a much smaller scale library, I read your stuff pretty religiously just to make sure that I'm not screwing something up because I feel like you've done it a lot more than I have. But I also do recognize that I'm out there in the marketplace with you, right? And I've always found it nice that you're still willing to put yourself out there and to share all of your information and knowledge with people like me that are actually utilizing that knowledge and putting more products out there into the market.
0: Well, I really like helping people. And also, I really firmly believe that sound has been underrepresented as far as our senses are concerned. I mean, We're largely dominated by visuals, and sound, I think, has a lot of power to affect people emotionally and in the projects that we work on. So my goal is to get more great sound out there, whether it comes from me or whether it comes from other people. I think if there's more great sound out there, then it's going to help everyone create better projects. It's just like a cycle. It'll keep happening. And then there's also something I call in this creative um, field recording book that will be coming out in January or February. There's something that I bring up that I call your imprint. And I think every field recordist contributes something very specific and very unique to the recordings. If they do it consciously, that cannot be replicated. And I think once a field recordist kind of steps outside the gear and starts thinking about what they as a creator bring to every single sound effect whether it's a door or it's someone else performing or an atmosphere there's always that you can invest your own personality or your own perception of that field recording that can make it stronger and can make it yours and no one else can touch that and that is something that you can contribute to these sounds and then you'll contribute that in every single project that these sounds participate in so i really firmly believe every single field recordist and sound creator has that within them and I would just love to hear more of it. So that's kind of the purpose of the series of these books and the blog as well. That's great.
3: Yeah, it's fantastic. I myself am very much looking forward to that second one. Oh cool. I think that's great. I've never really seen anyone tackle recording from that perspective. So that's very, very interesting.
1: Yeah, agreed. Oh, thank you. So Paul, thanks, man. That was great. Uh, tell us again where we can find the book. The book is
0: available on my blog. So it would be at jetstreaming.org forward slash
1: books. Perfect. Go pick it up. Now we have a couple of notes about the last episode. Tim, have you got anything?
2: Yeah, I got something. Sean Farley, our guest from last week's episode, just sent us in a quick correction on something that he said. He stated that Zatcom's NeverClip uses two amplifiers, but what he really should have said was it uses two analog-to-digital converters. Keep that note of that. Also, I just wanted to throw out a big congratulations to David Burns, who did an interview in our last episode about how he uses his iPad. He just won a big award for Best Film Music at the SOCAN Awards. That's kind of Canada's version of ASCAP or BMI. So congratulations to David.
1: Thanks to everyone who listens and participates in the show. Thanks to Adele Young for letting us bend and twist her voice on our bumpers. Thanks to Paul Verostek for jumping on the podcast with us today. Thanks, Paul. Thank you. Also a big thanks to John and Ryan at the home recording show podcast. They gave us a little unsolicited plug in their latest episode. And I just want to say how much I respect what those guys do over there. Uh, they've been putting out great shows every single week for years and they're a big inspiration to what we're doing over here. And I know it's, it's gotta be just a Herculean effort to do it every week. Like they do as opposed to every three weeks, like we do. So, uh, you guys rock. Yes. Follow the show at The Tonebenders and go to tonebenders.net to leave a comment. Also, check us out at facebook.com slash tonebenderspodcast. We'll see you guys next time.
3: See ya. Bye, everybody. Ciao.
0: Thanks for listening to Tonebenders. Find us online at tonebenders.net, where you can see our archives and leave a comment or a tip. Follow us on Twitter at The
3: Tonebenders or email us at DC, Timothy, or Renee at tonebenders.net.